If you're like me, uh, there's three things I hate, is when somebody points their scalp, somebody that opens their mouth, or spreads their legs. I hate all those things because then it always ends up being a long appointment. Um, luckily, I'm with uh, Mayo Clinic and they have great people that help me out with all those things. Um, Dr. Edwards uh, went to college medical school at Wake Forest University. She's board certified in internal medicine, board of pediatrics, and the board of dermatology. Please welcome Dr. Libby Edwards. Thank you very much. Um, you know, it's been a kudos to all of you who are still here, as pretty as it is out there, and I'm sure as long as a week it's been. I've been. Um, Two things are happening this week that I thought I'd never see. The first one is that the American, in my lifetime, in my lifetime, and the first is that we were willing to elect a black man as president. I think that's great. And um, whatever your politics. And the second thing is that a dermatology group would invite me to speak about vulvodynia. I mean, th I think that that's about equal in, in likelihood. But I'm awfully glad that I have been because this is the perfect group to talk to. First of all, are there any, any gynecology MDs out there? Perfect. Um, <laughs> in general, gynecologists are only taught that about yeast, bacterial vaginosis, and trichomonas, and a little bit of atrophic vagina in there, but that's kind of gone by the wayside for all of those years that women were all on estrogen. Dermatology MDs as a group can't be dragged in to look at a vulva. If they know the, what the problem is before the patient comes, they don't even want to see the patient. So my best group to talk to people about women's vulvovaginal problems have been nurse practitioners because as a group they tend to work with gynecologists and they listen and like you, um, they're more willing to think about what's going on and to think, and I hate this term, outside the box. But, you know, the box is only this big, and if you look up the box, it doesn't tell you anything. So you kind of have to figure it out on your own. There are so few people who do chronic vulvovaginal things. Is there anybody in here that manages lights? Because I'm going to be showing a lot of pictures, and if the lights could come down a little bit, I would like it. Okay. Um, this is a picture of New Zealand where the International Society for the Study of Vulvovaginal Disease had a World Congress a couple of years ago. You'll be seeing different um, landscapes and, and uh, pretty pictures in beyond my gross, nasty, ugly pictures, and almost all of those were taken at one of our ISSVD meetings. Any of you who think that you'd be interested in um, semi-specializing, learning more about getting involved in women with chronic vulvovaginal symptoms, see me about this organization. We are mostly, mostly gynecologists, and second is dermatologists, and then other specialties and al allied health. For example, we have a lot of physical therapists that are members, only about 200 of us, and it's a fun um, organization. My disclosures, I've been a speaker for Estellas. Um, the most important thing here, though, is that almost everything that I'm going to be talking about is based on experience. There is no evidence, almost no evidence-based medicine in what I'm about to tell you, unfortunately. People are not doing the studies. Uh, they're beginning to start because the um, uh, Congress has 
given a mandate to the NIH to start funding more vulvar studies. Uh, and one of the first studies that was done and was completed came out in 2003 and says that almost 20 percent of women in a large male-in questionnaire study had unexplained vulvar burning, irritation, rawness, soreness that had gone on for at least six months without a diagnosis. That's how common. 20 percent of women and 7 percent of women at this time have got chronic vulvovaginal pain issues as well as some itching issues. This is a huge problem. I thought this was a bit much. I mean, I do this all day every day and I still thought it was a bit much. I've had three or four nurses who've come to me after they've worked long enough to realize what I really do. Um, my mother-in-law, my sister-in-law, these are very common problems. So finally, we're getting a bit of research and we really need people who are paying attention to these women um, and men but to a lesser degree uh, to, to pay attention and to treat these ladies. Um, most of the therapies are off-label, but that's no big surprise. We're, we're dermatologists. We know they're off-label. That's, that's what we do, is we take things and try them for other purposes. Um, ISSVD stylized vulva logo. See, if you join our organization, you get um, ties and scarves with these stylized vulvas all over them. Um, basic principles in treating women with chronic vulvovaginal symptoms. I'm not talking about the person who starts itching on Friday and comes in on Monday, but you're not going to see those people anyway. They're going to go to a gynecologist. They're not going to come to a dermatologist. But women who have been hurting or who have been itching for a long time, the first thing is that they are anxious and they're depressed. Chronic symptoms produce depression. And when those are chronic symptoms that are of the genital area and impact so many parts of your life, including what people wear, what they eat, if they're on one of these low yeast diets, um, uh, sexual relationships, this has an exaggerated response. And then often, clinicians don't help very much. This is um, a letter that came with outside records for a woman that I saw as a consult, and I blotted out her um, her name and the name that's in the body of the letter is not the person who wrote this letter. But he has a clinic and he um, sees people one time, sit in medical school, sees them one time and then will not see them again and will not talk to them on the phone, which is very handy. It would make your life much easier. Um, but he says, because she kept calling anyway, that uh, the cleansing and drying treatments to include the application of Balisone cream have not been beneficial. Therefore, this is psychological. Go get psychological help. Um, don't treat your ladies like that. Normal variants can be confusing. Most of us are not used to looking at vulvas, um, at least not professionally. So we're not used to seeing lots of, different, um, lots of different variations. We all know how different a face is. When somebody comes in saying they've got a red face, and it's a little red, but it can just be hard to tell. So um, this is a looks like a red vulva, but it's normal vestibular redness. This is somebody who is very, very light complexioned, and she doesn't even think that her vulva's red. This is someone who came in for follow-up after a couple of years of genital warts or something. But patients will come in saying, I'm so red and I'm so swollen. So don't get suckered at looking at the vulva and saying, wow, you are red. You can't tell often. And this person is at the far end of redness because this computer shows things redder than it does on mine. Um, here's a patient who's got four-day spots. She's got enlarged oil glands or large sebaceous glands. Um, many of you are going to know that already. But this is a woman who had been seen four times and lasered four times for her genital warts. 
when they're not genital warts. So anytime you see something that's monomorphous and bilaterally symmetrical and asymptomatic, the chances are good that they're a normal function, uh, a normal structure. Consider biopsying if you're not sure. Now this is a, a woman who has vulvar papillae, often called uh, vestibular papillae, but I see them in areas other than the vestibule. Ah, anatomy lesson here. This thing have a, yes. Um, this is the inner labia minus. This is the introitus, the opening to the vagina. Can you see that there's a difference in demarcation of the skin here? This is very smooth, and this is mucous membrane, just like in your mouth. This is not smooth. This is the inner aspect of the labium minus. One labia minora is a labium minus. Two or more is labia minora. Um, and this is where the skin changes. So you're going to see here outside skin diseases, including folliculitis. On, on this part of the vulva. Um, and these vulvar papillae or vestibular papillae like to come here. And they are little tubular structures. They are discrete to the base and they have little rounded tips and they are frequently misdiagnosed as HPV infection. They can be, uh, they can be differentiated from HPV infection by the fact that they are discrete all the way to the base and warts are fused part way down by the fact that they are bilaterally symmetrical. Warts rarely are unless it's by, um, by chance most of the time. And by the fact that these have got rounded tips instead of acuminate tips. So most of the time it's not a difficult distinction, but the, the, um, uh, that problem has occurred before. Third thing is looking carefully for subtle abnormalities. Sometimes very minor things can cause major symptoms. How many people in here have had an aphthous ulcer, an aphtha? Okay, a lot. So you all know how much they can hurt. They can really hurt, and you go, look in there, you don't see very much, and you feel like that you don't have a real reason to hurt because it's just this little tiny um, uh, yellowish spot with red around it. Well, think of the genitalia and how much more sensitive the genitalia are than the mouth. Think of the things you do to your mouth, like hot coffee, that you would never expose your genital area to. So it's worth it to look with magnification if you're long in the tooth like I am. And I don't mean a colposcope, but I mean, you know, some of the cheap loops or something at the whole vulva and looking between skin folds because trivial things sometimes can cause major problems. For example, here's a vulva. This woman's got pain. She says every time she urinates, it burns like stink. Every time she has sexual intercourse with her partner, the semen burns like stink. And this looks like a pretty normal vulva to me. But when you blow it up, and now that's a big perianal area now, uh, the, way, the way that's enlarged, you can see that she has got some small fissures, some small skin fold fissures. Often, that will just look like a fine red line. And a patient can get them one day, and they'll be healed within 48 hours, so you may not see them but look and take seriously very minor things. Fix those minor things, and if they get better, you can be proud of yourself. A lot of times they get better, and the, 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 the lesion goes away, and they still have symptoms, but you need to fix it to see. Multifactorial processes are common. Once again, as dermatologists, we know that. I mean, how many kids come in with secondarily infected eczema? So we're used to that kind of thing. It's even more common on a warm, damp vulva where there's friction and where there's, uh, by the nature of its being, a lot of irritation. This is a woman who was sent to me to try and convince the patient to have her warts lasered off. 
and she was very itchy. And her doctor was telling her, they'd already been lasered off a couple of times in the distant past. She was 56, they'd been there for years, she was married, had a stable relationship, and she didn't want them lasered off again. So she comes to me and I see these brown flat places, um, which worry me for um, not only HPV, but maybe a high-risk HPV, maybe a squamous cell carcinoma in situ, which the gynecologists call VIN3. But she also had no labia minora, and she's got this hypopigmented area here, which is going to be um, more likely to be the cause of her itching because she's got lichen sclerosis. And then she also has hydradenitis. See the little draining nodules that she's got down here, which can also itch. So if you just look at this woman and you see these warts, which are the first and second thing that I see when I look at her, then you're going to miss the cause of her itching. So look for several things going on at the same time. Finish your exam even though you think you find the reason for what's going on. Um, another thing is that iatrogenic disease is common. If patients come to me with one problem, I can make it into two without half trying. Here is a woman who uh, came in with lichen simplex chronicus. She was itchy, she was rubbing, she's rubbed all the hair off that she's got. Um, she's got some fissures anteriorly up here, and so I gave her uh, clobetazole, and she comes back two weeks later saying, I was so much better the first few days, but now I'm itchy again, and that's because now she's got yeast. So think of the, th the problems that you may provide when with your medications and try to prevent them. Uh, vaginal disease, and the way I should have prevented that, well, first of all, one would hope that I did um, a vaginal swab to make sure she didn't have yeast to begin with. Um, but also, if she's high risk, and I started replacing her estrogen at the same time. Replacing estrogen puts somebody at risk for yeast in that first month. So giving her estrogen and giving her an ultrapotent steroid, I should have given her fluconazole weekly to prevent that from happening, and I didn't do it. Um, vaginal disease is often important. Now, here's the hard sell for you people. And it was a hard sell for this person for the first 10 years because I just, I didn't want to go there. Didn't want to put something into a vagina. Didn't know what I was looking at when I did. And I'm good at finding yeast under the microscope, but I didn't know what else I was really looking for. Um, but you have to. Anybody with chronic problems, even if it's a, an outside vulvar problem, whatever's in the vagina only has one way out and it's going to affect the skin. And you've got to look at it. It doesn't take long, but you really need to look at it. For example, here is a woman who, um, on, the, on your left, this is a normal wet mouth. I hope that I don't offend you for the next minute or so in assuming that you don't know exactly what a normal wet mouth is supposed to look like. I didn't, um, but then that's me. Here is, um, this is a normal wet mouth. This, the red cell, the red um, um, arrow is pointed towards a white cell. You should have about one white cell for every epithelial cell. This big cell here is a nice epithelial cell. It's what it looks like when you do a KOH before it's dissolved. It's big, flat, and folded over. Okay, that's what you should have being shed from the surface of the vagina, which is covered with skin, which is our job, skin, up halfway up the um, um, cervix. And then this small arrow is pointed towards lactobacilli. All of these rods are lactobacilli. This is what you're supposed to look like between about 12 and about 50. Now on this side, this woman has only these round cells. These are basal cells that are shed from a very, very thin epithelium. 
because of low estrogen, it's what this woman's got, because of that low estrogen, the epithelium doesn't mature. It's only two or three cell layers thick, so those cells don't have a chance to mature. Because of the low estrogen, there are no bacteria. So this woman's got a vaginal pH of about seven instead of four and a half. And this woman has no white cells. But sometimes that very thin, dry skin rubs against itself in the vagina, especially if you've got a rectocele or a cystocele pushing on it, and then you get erosions, then you get inflammation, then you get white cells and atrophic vaginitis. She looks fine from the outside. Her introitus vestibule is a little bit red because of the irritating uh, purulent secretions, but other than that, she looks fine. You'll never figure out why she has constant burning pain. You need to look in the vagina for some of these things. Um, another basic premise, and you already know this as well from looking at other skin folds, but, present, but the presentations of skin diseases are often atypical or nonspecific compared to when they occur in, um, compared to when they occur on the outside of your skin, so outside of your body. So here's somebody who's got classic like, um, psoriasis. Even my mama would have known what that was. He's got the, the well-demarcated plaques of silvery scale, perfect. On an elbow, perfect. Now that happens to be a man's arm, but you're not gonna notice that because this is a girl talk. Um, whereas here's a vulva. Now this vulva looks kinda red. But do you see scale? Not really. Is it well demarcated? Not really. And this woman, all she had was vulvar disease with her, with her um, psoriasis and nail pits, nothing else. Because as you know, psoriasis exhibits the Kebner phenomenon in many, many people, but not everybody, meaning that injury and irritation will cause the disease to come up in that area. And the vulva is always irritated. People sit on it, they pee on it, they have intercourse, they overwash it. This is an area that by the nature of, of its function, it's always irritated. But you can't look at this woman and say, ah, oh, well dear, you've got psoriasis. Um, all you can say is, well dear, you've got a red vulva. And then you need to look into it to find out why. And I would never call one of my patients dear. Um, trying to be cute sometimes backfires. Any inflammatory dermatosis can produce resorption of normal vulvar architecture or scarring. Um, this is what I was taught my training program would be like in sclerosis. It's a little bit white, there are no labia minora, the clitoral hood has been scarred over, but it's not. She has cicatricial pemphigoid. She also has, interestingly enough, dry eye syndrome, and she has lost her teeth from um, poor dental hygiene, and she's got vaginitis, an inflammatory vaginitis, and that doesn't happen with lichen sclerosis. I, I mean, yeah, that doesn't happen with lichen sclerosis. Lichen sclerosis doesn't like mucous membrane. Um, so she shouldn't have vaginitis with it. She had neutrophils, redness, and erosions. So a biopsy uh, that showed positive immunofluorescence for, um, uh, for, for pemphigoid. And the bleeding at the introitus is where I had put in a small Peterson speculum, a pediatric Peterson speculum, actually. But her fragility was such that she was bleeding there but you can't tell from looking at this what her problem is. Even though it's classic for lichen sclerosis, it's not lichen sclerosis. Here's a patient who's got lichen planus. She's got all of this scarring, uh, pretty remarkable. Looks like lichen sclerosis, it's not, because everything can, um, can scar. In fact, there's even a report of psoriasis producing scarring of the vulva with loss of the labia minora. And lichen planus, I used to think was a really rare problem, we now see that some of the figures now are that probably about one in 400 women may have uh, erosive lichen planus of the vulva. 
Uh, and here's lichen sclerosis. So sometimes things do like, look like they're supposed to, but anything can scar, even if it's not supposed to scar. So therefore, how are you gonna make the diagnosis? If everything looks alike and everything can scar, how do you know? Um, I'm not really saying that to try and discourage people, but to let you know that when you look and you haven't a clue, it means that you're in good company. So it means you've got to go through the back door. Look at other mucous membrane and skin surfaces. Sometimes that will give you a hint. Here's a woman who came to see me last year, and she was having introidal dyspareunia. She hurt when she had sex. And when you look at her, she's got some redness here. Well, I've already told you that redness is normal, but that redness um, is fairly sharply demarcated. Can you see where I've got the arrow? And it's kind of sharply demarcated. So I thought, hmm, eh. And I looked at her mouth, and the red arrow shows some red gums, not much. And the white arrow, arrow shows maybe a little bit of white streakiness, but I'm just not convinced. You keep looking, and ah, she's got classic lichen planus in the back of her mouth. So I gave her an ultrapotent steroid for the red area of her vestibule, and a month later, she was happy. And she had no pain, she had no itching, because she had pretty mild disease. Sometimes you're lucky, and things, things turn out that way. The other thing is biopsying, but only biopsy specific lesions. Don't just biopsy non-specific red. I would have on the lady with, that I just showed you with lichen planus, if I wanted to biopsy her vulva, I would have biopsied the edge of that well-demarcated area. Otherwise, make sure you've got something specific that you see, not generalized redness and not, yes, doctor, I hurt right here. Oh, keep your finger there while I numb it up. Don't do that. It doesn't really help. You're going to get back nonspecific chronic inflammation with, with squamous hyperplasia and um, hyperkeratosis, and that's a normal vulvar biopsy. I already said the vulva is always a little bit irritated. Well, it's a little bit irritated microscopically, too. You already know, send it to a dermatopathologist. If you're doing a vulva, you don't want to send it to a GYN pathologist who's going to say no evidence of dysplasia or no viral disease seen. You want to know what there is, not what there isn't. Um, biopsies, as you know, also aren't a lab test. And you know how often we get back nonspecific biopsies. Now, usually if it's a tumor, we do. But if it's an inflammatory process and we don't know what's going on, I would say over half of my biopsies come back with, they don't know what's going on either. They give me a description which can be helpful. So I warn the patient about that first. If you go biopsying the, the edge of the clitoris and you don't get an answer, it's nice if you already warned her than if you're gonna have to call her up and tell her, well, it didn't show anything. Um, just like the, um, the morphologic appearance of skin and the genital area is much less specific, I believe that biopsies are less specific as well. We have red herrings of um, more plasma cells than most areas of the body. A lichenoid inflammatory process is a very common nonspecific reactive pattern here. So warn your patient. And I am blessed at the group where I send my biopsies to have two people that are interested specifically in vulvar disease and have joined the ISSVD with me. And I send them a picture as well as, as the slide and tell them what I think is going on. Makes it a lot more fun. I always offer these people a, a topical anesthetic because very often when I go to biopsying genitalia, the patient's like this. And I find that I, if I say, well, I am happy to put you up in stirrups for 45 minutes, and, um, and then it will hurt much less. Um, or we can do this, and I will numb you up in less than one second, and it will feel like a bee sting. 
Most of them will opt for the quick, but it put them in the driver's seat. They didn't feel like they were being attacked quite so much. Um, you know how to do a punch. I do a punch if it's thick, hyperkeratotic skin like this, but I have a lot of trouble with a punch on the modified mucous membranes or the mucous membranes when the skin is thin, especially if it's going to be a, an erosion and I think I'm going to rip the, the surrounding epithelium off, or if it's a blister and I know I'm going to rupture the blister. But you can't get hold of it like you do a punch on the rest of the body. So here's what I, here's, here's what I do. Maybe the rest of the world does this too, but I was never taught to. I just take a piece of suture, take a little bite out of it. This woman's got a blister. Lift up and use some curved iris scissors and snip it off. And I try not to go to fat if it's one of these processes so it heals much faster. Um, I biopsy a lot more than I used to. I was apparently a lot smarter 15 or 20 years ago. Every year that goes by, I get dumber and I do more biopsies. But rebiopsy, if you've got somebody who's got lichen sclerosis or lichen planus and they're not doing well and they've got thickened areas or they've got eroded areas, and just let these patients know when they're not well controlled that you're going to be doing biopsies every now and again to look for secondary squamous cell carcinoma. Um, and that you do that biopsy and it's not there, that's not the end of the story. You will still be doing some. I rebiopsy patients if I don't get a diagnosis and the appearance changes, and I think now I've got something I can biopsy that may be more useful. And I will biopsy even if I think I know exactly what's going on, um, but they're not responding to therapy to make sure that there are no, no um, surprises in there. This is also New Zealand. <clears throat> oh no, what did I do? Ah. Undid it. All right. So some therapeutic principles. The first thing is explaining diseases. Our patients pretty well know that we're not going to cure their eczema. We're not going to cure their psoriasis, Ted. Um, you know, a dermatology patient never dies and is never cured. We manage patients. We don't use cure in the office. That's a four-letter word, all of those things. But these people have usually come from gynecologists who deliver the baby, who cut out the uterus, who cure the, the yeast. So one of the first things we need to let them know is we're going to try we're going to, when, we, when you can do it, say, we're going to manage this disease. If it's erosive like implantis, we say, we're going to make this a lot better, but we're not going to cure it. And you need to let many of them know that there may be several, uh, several trial and error therapies before you find what suits them. They're much more patient with you if you do all of this. Second thing is treat all the possible factors, even if you think it's not playing a role, because trivial things come, sometimes can cause significant symptoms. A third thing is to anticipate the iatrogenic disease, like preventing yeast and irritant contact dermatitis that I was talking about earlier. When in doubt, use a tricyclic medication. Note, I don't say tricyclic antidepressant. A tricyclic medication for pain, for nighttime sedation, for itching, and it is an antihistamine in some of these patients. Um, sometimes I think they should just put it in the city water. Um, everybody has got, has got their issues. But amitriptyline, dizipramine, um, amipramine, doxepin are awfully good for some of these things. I have a handout that I give patients because if I don't give them the handout, the pharmacist is going to tell them it's an antidepressant. And I want them to know that I'm using this for neuropathic pain and for nighttime sedation. And if they get an antidepressant effect, yes. Um, avoid cream vehicles on the vulva, period. Creams burn many people. Um, if they have eroded skin or painful skin that looks normal or if it's prepubertal, definitely avoid um, creams. And most of the antifungal topical therapies are creams. All of the myconazoles and the turconazoles and the other azoles, they all come in, in creams. So either use oral medication 
or use Nystatin, which comes as a very soothing ointment. Um, the next one is not as hard to sell now as it used to be, but the vulva is a pretty steroid-resistant part of the body. Think of the vulva like you do the plantar aspect of the foot or the palm of the hand. Hydrocortisone isn't going to work. So you want to use an ultra-potent steroid or at least a potent steroid. Now, the hair-bearing part of the vulva and the perianal skin and the cruel crease, now those are very thin and they will atrophy very quickly. But the modified mucous membranes of the vulva require a potent steroid. Here's a woman with lichen sclerosis. She comes to see me. She's miserable. Who she was mean too, but I don't... I can see why she would be as miserable as she is. You can tell she's been using testosterone because she's got that big old clitoris sitting there. She's lost all of her vulvar, um, uh, all of her labia minora. She's got thickened, macerated. She's got bad lichen sclerosis. So she's headed down to Florida. I'm in North Carolina. Charlotte happens to be about halfway between New York and Miami. So she stops in in, um, in September, and I see her and I start her on clobetazole. And I set her up with a, a dermatologist down here to see in a month. And she comes back in April, where she's still using clobetazole twice a day because she elected not to see the doctor down here because she was doing fine and didn't want to pay any extra money. So she's been using clobetazole twice a day on her vulva for seven months and has gotten away with it quite nicely. And most people do. I don't assume that. I see people back every month if they're using clobetazole here every day. And then when I drop them to three times a week or to a milder steroid, then I will um, uh, decrease the frequency. Because here is, once again, a man, sorry about that, um, who's been using triamcinolone for his psoriasis, you can tell that from his nails, for one month. And he already has these, um, these stria. So I don't want you to take away from this that you can't hurt somebody with topical steroids in the genital area. You don't very often but um, more that they are required with careful follow-up and with careful showing the patient where you're going to put the medicine. I take a picture of people and um, print it off at the front desk and I circle where they're supposed to put their medication because women keep thinking that that red place is where, they're, where they need to put their medicine and that's usually the normal place. Um, when patients don't respond, what do you do? Well, the first thing I do is I check them for infection, not not just yeast, but everything, including herpes. Here's a woman who's referred to me, and her diagnosis was chronic resistant herpes, and she was immunocompetent, not real likely. So I thought that she had loss of uh, vulvar architecture and some hypopigmentation, but she was weeping and oozing. I couldn't, she wouldn't let me touch her. She had uh, yellow pus draining from her vagina. So I... Um, Gave her some cephalexin because 10 years ago cephalexin actually worked for skin infections. And I gave her oral fluconazole once a week and I had her do soaks. She just sit in a tub two to three times a day for 15 minutes for warm soaks. And she came back and I gave her pain medication. She came back in a week and here's what she looks like. Her skin is certainly not clear and normal, but all the weeping and exudation is gone and normal. And I biopsied her to prove her lichen sclerosis because her gynecologist didn't believe me over the phone. Fortunately, the biopsy, thank you God, did show lichen sclerosis because I biopsied classic lichen sclerosis and had it come back normal skin and had to rebiopsy it. And so at this point, I started the clobetazole and here she is at the end of six weeks and she went on to have normal color and texture of her skin. But all the clobetazole in the world isn't gonna help this woman if she is infected. It's just going to make her more irritated. So when a patient doesn't respond, look for infection. 
Second thing is consider irritant, especially irritant contact dermatitis. Um, unless somebody's using topical Benadryl or topical Neosporin, which is I start early on. This is a woman with lichen sclerosis, and she's not getting better because she is using Lysol compresses. Oh, sorry about the brand name. I don't know a generic name for Lysol. What can I say? Um, Lysol in the 1960s was advertised in women's magazines for feminine hygiene. So we've come a little way. Okay. Uh, another thing is to, and women, especially old women, and to me old is anything after 55, which I would just like to say breaks my heart now. Um, but older women really think of the vulva as being dirty and they're gonna wash and wash and they'll use lava, they'll use, you know, men tend to go for Clorox and women tend to go for too much soap and water. But they will do amazing things, especially if they ever had sex out of wedlock even once in their life. Um, so the next thing is to reconsider your diagnosis if they're not getting better. Maybe you were wrong or maybe they've got an an another diagnosis. Here's a woman who had, uh, has lichen sclerosis. You can see all of the resorption of her architecture. She's already had a vulvectomy for squamous cell carcinoma. So me, I see this red plaque and I think, uh, her squamous cell carcinoma is coming back and I biopsy it. Nope, she's got a totally unrelated problem. I don't know what she did to annoy the big man upstairs. Um, next thing is to evaluate for squamous cell carcinoma. Any chronic inflammation can produce, um, can produce um, um, squamous cell carcinoma, and that's true in the genital area as well. So here's a woman with lichen planus who kept getting worse no matter what I did. Uh, I biopsied her three or four times a year. Finally, she got a squamous cell carcinoma. Thank you, God. Because then we could do a vulvectomy and start over with normal new skin, and she's done well ever since. New Zealand. Okay, vulvodynia. That's background for vulvodynia. Chronic pain versus itch. You know, itching is usually due to a skin disease or yeast, uh, whereas pain is more often due to erosive skin disease. And itch is like dizzy. It means so many different things to different people. I am using in this context, I have to scratch it. And it usually feels good, but with lichen sclerosis, they can tear their skin up. I'm not talking about prickly, stingy, irritated. I'm putting that in the pain end of things. So we're going to look primarily at pain now. Itching is a whole nother lecture. Um, the things that you want to see, if a woman comes in saying that she's having pain, she's having burning, she has pain with intercourse, you need to have this little thing in your brain. First you look for skin disease. Most common skin disease is going to be lichen planus. There are those introidal erosions. And um, sometimes it'll even be only in the vagina. They won't have it on the vulva. So they'll have pain but look fine. Another reason for looking in the vagina. Second thing is infection. Um, yeast doesn't usually hurt primarily. Yeast causes itching and you may hurt after you scratch. But um, this is a kind of yeast that sometimes does. This is Candida glabrata. Um, anybody see the Candida glabrata? I didn't. This was my sister-in-law. So I did the culture. It came back, and then I was able to go back and um, look again. And I don't know if you can now see that little bud. The problem with some of these non-albicans candidates, they don't have mycelia. There are no hyphae or pseudohyphae. There are only the buds. Most, and about 15% of all yeast infections are now uh, non-albicans candida. 
Most of the time when you clear the non-Albicans candida, which is kind of hard to treat, and we're not going to go there, that's another whole nother lecture, uh, another Noel Huther, yeah. Um, they don't get any better. The yeast is gone, but they're still uncomfortable. Here's someone with strep. Most of the time, strep is a colonizer. Every once in a while, it will cause an inflammatory, um, inflammatory vaginitis. So look for less common infections. Then specific neuropathy. You know, if you get shingles, you are very likely to have post-herpetic neuralgia, and you may end up with genital burning. Usually, it's not only localized to the, to the genital area, but it can be. Now, once you've ruled out skin disease, infection, and specific neuropathy, oh, you have diabetes, your feet burn, your vulva burns, you've got diabetic neuropathy. You've ruled out all three of those. Then you have a genital pain syndrome. Then you have vulvodynia. Vulva, that part we're talking about, odynia, uh, Greek for, I think it's Greek, I don't think it's Latin, I'm pretty sure it's Greek, for um, burning, or anodynia, or bothodynia. Um, these are people who've got chronic burning, rawness, pain, stinging, soreness, not itching, I have to scratch, in the absence of any explainable causes. And we believe in the year 2008 that vulvodynia is not a disease, it's a symptom, and it's produced by a combination of things coming together. Number one, neuropathy, some sort of um, unexplained neuropathy. Many people believe that this may be reflex, reflex sympathetic dystrophy a, um, or um, complex regional pain syndrome is one of the newer names for that. Uh, it may be a peripheral neuropathy, maybe a nerve ending problem. Uh, there's a very good chance that it's actually a central problem. It may be a brain problem where people perceive normal touch as being painful. So that this clusters with headaches, with TMJ, with irritable bowel syndrome, with fibromyalgia, with interstitial cystitis. So it's a systemic problem. You help one of those, everything gets better. Second main um, abnormality in these women is pelvic floor muscle abnormalities. The pelvic floor muscles, those muscles that you use if you try and stop urinating midstream, those muscles that you use, uh, that, that, that um, you use if you're in church and you're trying not to fart. Um, these are muscles that are, I guess you try not to fart other places too, but it's quieter there than it is some places. Um, I now I've forgotten what I was going to say. I didn't mean to go there. <laughs> Pelvic floor muscles are supposed to be very loose and relaxed. You walk around, you cough or sneeze, they reflex tighten. But about one in five women, and I don't know about men and I should, because scrotodynia and penodynia do exist. Um, about one in five women appears to be born with pelvic floor muscles that are a little bit tight all the time and irritable, fasciculations. But these are women who can't clamp down hard and hold it. They're overall weak. And these are the women that tend to develop vulvodynia with a trigger. You, they've got this, and 20% of women, remember, are the number that get unexplained chronic pain at some point in their life. It's probably not a coincidence. Um, so a, so the pel, an abnormal pelvic floor plays a role. Estrogen may play a role. Certainly it plays a role in older women, but even in younger women, there's one study out there showing decreased estrogen receptors of the vulva in women with vulvodynia. That's one study. I'm not ready to believe it yet, but at least it's a study. Um, and then the stress and anxiety and depression that come from having chronic pain, that come from having chronic genital pain, that come from six years of not having sex with a husband who's tired of it. Um, all of that uh, 
compounds to make any pain much worse. There are two major patterns of vulvodynia. There's vulvar vestibulitis, which we have renamed vestibulodynia because there's no itis about it. Um, the original biopsy showed inflammation. That was before we really realized that everybody showed inflammation. And that's pain that's only at the opening and pretty much only when it's touched. That's the main pattern that we see. And then there's generalized vulvodynia, where the pain moves around or it's all over or it's hard to, it's hard to really pin down. Most of my patients have pain that's in the vestibule, but it occasionally goes beyond there. It doesn't really make much difference, except that if you have pain that is strictly limited to the vestibule, then surgery is a wonderful option, and it's not a good option for other kinds of vulvodynia. This is a patient with vestibulodynia. You can see redness at the, um, at the vestibule. Um, here is, here's the hymeneal caruncle, the hymeneal ring, what's left of it, labia minus. Here is heart's line that, that shows outside keratinized skin from inside mucous membrane. So some redness of the vestibule is perfectly acceptable in that diagnosis. That doesn't count as a skin problem. It's secondary, it's kind of a reflex redness. All the steroid in the world won't help this because this is not a skin problem, this is not an inflammatory problem. Kind of hard for dermatologists to get our teeth into that. General measures in helping women with vulvodynia. Number one, they've usually already come in with general measures. They have gone on a low yeast diet. They have gone on a low oxalate diet. And by the way, that combination is incompatible with life. They've changed their living habits. Their, their gynecologist has often told them to rinse off every time they urinate and then to dry with a hair dryer. Um, that's kind of standard. First of all, that's a great recipe for chapping. Second, you can't go anywhere. They don't have outlets in, at the mall and in the, in the, in the booths or anything else. It's, it really interferes with your life. Um, bathing habits. Um, don't take a bath. I guess all that nasty, dirty stuff from your vulva might get on the rest of your skin and infect your body. I'm not sure why. Many people are told not to take baths, but they are. So these women often, their whole life is revolved around it. I um, had dinner one time with a woman who was a real believer in the low oxalate diet, and we went to a restaurant and she couldn't eat. She sat there and watched me eat because there was nothing on the menu she could have. Kind of changes your life. So with a lot of these general measures, I'm trying to get people to not focus on their vulva, not because it's cyclosomatic, um, and there is some, you know, the, the, the stress does make it worse, but because they need to have some sort of a life somewhere, and none of this has been shown to help. So the first thing is patient education. I tell them about it. I have handouts, because if the patient has something that's written down, it makes it more real. Uh, I think my website is on the first page of this. I've got all my handouts, you're welcome to download them, change them to fit you and fit your personality. Don't even put my name on there, they don't care. Uh, put your name on there if you're really brave. Um, but then they've got the handouts. And like for the medications, I've got handouts for amitriptyline and why we use it for that. And I tell them that 20% of women have had vulvodynia, 7% have it today. Because women don't go around talking about their vulvar symptoms. They just don't do it. They're afraid that people will think they're crazy. Um, they've already been, their doctors have already kind of acted like they were crazy. So most women, the only people who know about this are their mother and their partner. Nobody else knows. So they think they're the only people in the world. So in my little packet, which is not online because I can't do that um, copyright wise, I've got a good housekeeping article on vulvodynia. 
I live in Charlotte. There's a Charlotte Magazine article on vulvodynia. Anytime you see an article on vulvodynia, you can know that whoever wrote it has it because nobody else is aware of it or really cares. But all of that really helps uh, women to realize that they're not alone, that this is a true, honest condition. Because we do, I'm sure you don't know this, we do tend to get lumped with the crazy diagnoses, the chronic fatigue that's often considered crazy, the fibromyalgia that's often considered crazy, the hypoglycemia, um, and all of these diseases have their, have their real people. Um, National Vulvodynia Association, have your patients join that. This is a group of women with vulvodynia in Bethesda, and instead of having a giant support group, they decided to have a giant medical clearinghouse and lobbying Congress group. They are the reasons that Congress has mandated NIH um, research. And we've had two NIH workshops on vulvodynia in the past, since 1912 years, where people have come in, uh, pain people and vulvar people have come in from the whole world for two days to talk and discuss about this. So have them join that group. Counseling, including sex therapy and couple counseling. Think of it first, but discuss it last or you'll turn them off. They will think you think that they're just crazy. Vulvar care measures, avoid irritants. I have a little paper, don't use soap, don't use KY jelly, you do this, and all that's on my website as well. General measures, I have them use xylocaine jelly, 2%, for pain. I don't have them often use 5% or the other more potent topical anesthetics because they burn. But jelly doesn't burn. It's wonderful for some people, it's useless for some people. You don't know until you try. And all this is in your handout, so there's nothing up here that's not. Um, specific oral therapies, medication for neuropathy. Um, I've got details, and I'm going to skip over a lot of these, so there'll be a little bit of time for questions, but you are all used to using medication for postherpetic neuralgia, same thing. But classically, women with vulvodynia are sensitive to medications. They come in with the, the, the three-page list of things that they are allergic to. So I start people out, and amitriptyline is my favorite medicine because it also helps bladders and people who have problems with frequency. I start them at half of a 10 milligram tablet a couple of hours before bedtime, and I have them gradually increase the dose. Um, and all of that is in my handout. I don't start them at 25 milligrams because they fall in their soup and won't try it again. Um, you will see that I've also got some um, um, details on gabapentin and pregabalin and venlafaxine and all that sort of thing. All of these are medications that I use for women with vulvodynia, and it's in your handout, but I don't have it here. Specific intralesional uh, medications, uh, triamcinolone, every injections. Every once in a while I'll have somebody who's got a trigger point, and I'll inject that, and they're great. We're talking once a year, but for that one patient, they're happy. Botulinum toxin is now being used by some people for the hypertonicity of the muscles. I'm sorry, that's not in there. I lied. There's a little bit that's not in there, but it's somewhere else. Every, every speaker's got a diddle for the hour before they come in. Uh, there's no specifics because there are no studies. There's some studies being done, but right now these are in the realm of, I did this in three people, nerve blocks. Send them to a gynecologist or a pain clinic who will do a block. First, to find out if you can find what nerve is giving you the problem, like pudendal neuralgia, but also for pain control. Um, pelvic floor therapy. I love pelvic floor physical therapy for my patients. I'm tempted to go down and try it myself because these women are so upset and in so much pain and I get them set up with our physical therapist who does um, internal tissue mobilization 
uh, which is kind of a buzzword for some types of massage. She measures the pelvic floor muscle activity with surface EMGs. She talks to these women. They have an hour with her every other week. Read in there that they also get some um, um, psychotherapy with it. There's somebody who knows what they're talking about. Somebody will spend an hour every other week, and it's not me. Um, I spend an hour with every new vulvar patient. They have me for about as long as they want. After that, it's 15 minutes, period, even if they come from Florida or Alabama to North Carolina, because they need somebody to talk to, but I am not trained for it, and it's not what I do well. And I don't want to. But they need it. They need it. And it shouldn't be ignored just because I don't want to do it. Then there is biofeedback, the glazier method. Uh, the glazier method, which um, people can do in their own home twice a day, every day. And I've got some um, specifics in there about it. But you have to have the equipment, and it is very stressful for patients. It's much better studied, however. Um, I don't use it very much because of the stress that's involved in the duration of therapy that takes to do it, um, to, to, to get better. Um, physical therapy, dee -dee 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 -dee, and then surgery, cutting the opening out and throwing it away, pulling vagina down through and tacking it down with patients with vestibulodynia has an 80 to 90 percent cure rate. Um, other measures, some people do acupuncture, hypnotherapy, and there's no good um, literature on any of these, and then the calcium citrate with a low oxalate diet. So counseling, I've already talked about. So here's what I do. In conclusion, isn't it great when you hear somebody say that? In summary, identify and correct abnormalities. And every time you see them, look again, because they may have gotten something. Um, and I don't mean caught something. You've got to be real careful with your language. They may have developed another process. Educate the patient. Minimize irritants. Irritants, refer them for counseling. Give them lidocaine jelly. Give them, I start people off with a tricyclic medication unless they have a problem like dry eye syndrome or constipation. And then pelvic floor physical therapy. All of that I do the first time I see them. And I, we work through that for a while. And then I will send them to surgery for vestibulectomy, which I only have to do about once a year. And you can send patients to your pain clinic. If you've got somebody who's a good pain management person, they can manage these medicines. They know about nerve blocks. They don't usually know anything about vulvodynia, and they don't want to. But if you can find a pain clinic who's interested, they can manage this just as well as you can, because they're used to managing pain. Um, and last year, we had our ISSVD World Congress in Alaska. And this coming fall, it's going to be in Edinburgh, Scotland. And after that, it's going to be in Paris. So and it's a very small group. We sit around talking and exchanging ideas uh, uh, to try and get better and to feel like we're not so weird and alone by doing vulvar disease as a specialty. Thank you very much. And we have about five minutes for any questions that people have, although I'm sure this was so clear that there aren't any. And I will be here, I think we have a break now. I will be out back and people are welcome to catch me for anything. Yes, ma'am. Hi, thank you. What do you do for your patients who get recurrent fissures after intercourse? I wrote an article, a manuscript on fissures, because there was nothing written. And um, it, 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 was, it was in um, dermatologic therapy a few years ago. But basically, fissures are um, a very nonspecific 
finding, and there are two main kind. If you're talking about the fissure at six o'clock that rips every time they have intercourse, we have not a clue what causes it, but the only treatment for it is to cut it out. And I don't mean side to side, because that just makes it tighter. You cut it out horizontally, you bring, you make a big smile over that fissure, and then you pull vagina through, not you, not, maybe not you, you, not me, me, but the gynecologist, or if you got some aggressive surgeons in your group, fine, I don't know why they couldn't. But it is bigger surgery than it sounds like, and people tend to do things like dehiss. Pull vagina through, tack it down, and it's gone. Some people say put estrogen on it, doesn't really help. Woman on top, lots of lubricant, preferably not KY, but vegetable oil, olive oil, almond oil, or slippery stuff. Um, you can get that online, www.slipperystuff.com or astroglide, which has to have been named by a man. Um, are all good lubricants, but it basically doesn't go away, so surgery is the final answer. Now, if you're talking about little tiny skin fold fissures all over, that's irritation from anything. It could be because they are irritated by semen or the KY, or yeast is the most common thing to do that. The yeast is kind of quiet unless they have intercourse, and then it, it, that riles it up and they get, get um, yeast. But any skin disease or infection that can cause inflammation that's very low grade can do it. And I will sometimes do the, I can't say this in front of Peter Lynch because he starts, anybody who knows him, he, he can't stand that it's so not scientific. I'll give him cephalexin by mouth and I'll give him clotrimazole and I'll give him a fluconazole and usually one of the three of those, if my cultures and my exam have been negative, will help keep that from happening. I've had a patient tell me that Mary Kay nighttime emollient cream is wonderful for preventing and treating fissures. And just to follow that up, um, how often would you repeat that if those are recurrent fissures with that cycle of antibiotics and antifungals? I would try it for a week or so and see if it worked. And if it works, then I would put people on it for one to three months to six months, depending on my mood for that day. Um, you know, gynecologists do things for three days. And I think once the skin is really irritated, you have to keep it free of that problem long enough for it to heal. And I don't know how long that is. I usually do three months and then have them stop it and cross my fingers. Hey, I'm a dermatologist. I put people on, on antibiotics for decades. Anyone else? Thank you very much.